Ricky, how are you? Good morning. Morning. I'm good, how are you? I'm really well. If it's as sunny as it is in Bedfordshire, as it is in Hertfordshire, it's a really good day. Currently, in between the clouds, not bad. Sun's shining at the moment, Jay, so keep my fingers crossed. That is marvellous. I'll get this out of the way firstly. I was born in Watford General Hospital. However, I am not preconditioned to detest anything to do with Luton. <laughs> good job. And in any case, like- you, could, you could have played for Watford. Well, I'm led to believe that uh, Sir Elton John had made overtures to try to sign me when I was younger, I guess. And I think the chairman at the time was Mr Mortimer, Dennis Mortimer at Luton, and he thought there's no way he could even attempt to entertain that. Well, no, I'm just thinking of the sales of this book, because 98% of them will be in the Bedfordshire region. Um, I imagine that the, the publisher pitch can just go door to door and say, Doc, not, not, do you want this Ricky Hill book? Love of the game, the man who brought the Rooney rule to the UK. I guess the germ of this book was from this event that Luton put on. There was an evening with Ricky Hill a couple of years ago. Yes. Yeah, 2019. No, I think Genesis was before that, to fear, Johnny, in regards to... Uh, it's, it all started to unravel once my good friend Sewer Regis had passed and, and he passed so suddenly that it starts to, to make me think, you know, in regards to, you know, just how fallible we are. You know, if I were to go tomorrow, have I left a, a legacy? Have I told enough of my story? I've been always pretty private um, throughout my career. I've never been one that courted headlines or liked to put my personal life out there for the public to have an insight of that. So it was just something that stemmed from that, plus the, the fact that, you know, Obviously, everyone mentions the fact of I was at Luton for four months and then I've gone on to do other things abroad and be fairly successful abroad or very successful. But everyone still mentions the four months at Luton without really knowing the true story of it. So I thought it's a good time to just let people know exactly what took place. What for managers would be out of their seats if they lasted four months at the moment? In fact, any any manager who lasted four months. I set set the trend, Johnny. I started to start off. You blaze a trail. Uh, and can I, can I also add that not only are you the first person called Ricky um, in the uh, football library, you're also the first former professional. You're the first person to make money playing football, or as you call it, your dream. So what, was it dreamlike when you were earning money, when you could have been doing anything else, earning money, training and playing and being an ambassador for Luton Town back in the 1980s? Well, it starts really, Jonathan, 70s, mid 70s. I joined Luton in 1975. And again, my initial reaction was, where's Luton? You know, I was born, born in London, brought up in Crickerwood, had no idea exactly where Luton was on the map. So I refused to, to go to the, the trials that we were offered by my school teacher because I said, oh, I didn't know where that was. And he said, well, you can get the train from Crickerwood Broadway at Crickwood Lane, oh, sorry, yeah, straight to can. Luton. Yeah, it's the southern right. train. Yeah. Right. So I thought, okay, great. So myself plus my two teammates who were selected from the from the game, that David Pleat and Danny Bagara and Roma Crowen, were at assessing their schoolboys already signed on forms for their intake for their apprenticeship for that year. So we went along to the to the first training session at Luton on our um, half term break. Unfortunately for us, there was no other schoolboys in, no other young um, apprentices in. So we ended up training with the first team on our very first day 
in a professional environment, which was, wasn't daunting for me. It was great because I'd always grown up playing with fellas that were a lot bigger than me and a lot stronger. And who were some of those professionals playing under the great David Pleat? At that time, it wasn't David, unfortunately. Oh, right. At that time, it was, uh, it was Harry, the late Harry Haslam. And um, Happy Harry, as he was affectionately known throughout the game, he had some wonderful old-time players. I mean, they were still possibly just on the 30, on the cusp of 30, not, not much older. Johnny Aston, the ex-Manchester United European Cup winners, mm-hmm. winner, um, left winger. And there was Alan West, obviously the captain, ex-Burnley in England, under 21. Jimmy Husband, ex-Everton. Uh, John Fortner, who passed away a couple of years back, ex-Leeds United. Um, and the list goes on. The Futcher twins were there. Uh, and it was just a real strong, manly environment. So, great. I went in there, didn't, you know, just done okay on that first morning. And it just progressed from there. We were invited back six weeks later. And Danny Bagara, who was a fantastic youth coach, who was very, very technically gifted and always liked his players to be able to be technically proficient, he'd shown us three tricks. And he said, in six weeks' time, I'm going to come back and I'm going to test you again to see whether you've learned these tricks. So I went back six weeks later. We went to the same corner of the pitch where he showed us it the first time on our own, three of us. And I managed to crack all three of them comfortably. My teammates, unfortunately didn't manage to be able to, to look after them or, or to, to to grasp them. And, yeah, it was just one of those things where I think in their mind they thought, well, this one might be serious because he's obviously been practising. Yeah, and you've been practising for the 10 years before that. I have a kind of rubber football in the flat, and I think that if I, if I cared less about what the neighbours thought, I would do some five lives. I think that's a, it's a wonderful game for kids to play to be ambi not ambidextrous kind of ambifootrous because you would what what foot would usually win the right foot or the left foot when you were training as a kid there's another twist to this story which again i because of my youth at the time johnny i was not aware now i'm predominantly left-handed my brother's predominantly who's two years two and a little bit years older than me he's predominantly left-handed predominantly left-footed and I actually had an accident when I was probably seven or eight years old. And in those days, they had them old kind of concrete toilet seats. And one of them was pitched up against a garage. And I went into the garage and, and we had those soft plinsoles with the canvas top on, on the actual plinsole. And I kind of just nudged the toilet seat thing and it fell onto my plinsole, onto my toe. And it took my whole nail off. Mm. Um, really painful, really you know, bad. You have to bathe it every night. My mum my mom, and it was excruciating because there's no nail there at all. And my brother, or rumour has it that since that time, because I couldn't use my left foot at that stage, I would then start to use my right foot. And I practiced my right, my right so often. So for me, I've heard people say to me, oh, you know, I'd like to have my left foot like yours. You know, your left foot was... But I always said my right foot was my strongest foot. But my left foot was my more technical foot in terms of dribbling and the skills and if you step over and little moves like that. So it's strange. I, I was lucky enough to practice so much that both both sides of my body, I felt, were quite reasonable. I wish. I, I played for school, but I didn't play for university. And uh, I've started the football library because I spent a long time working on this book about modern football. 
And uh, the second half of this chat, we will get to uh, what I call the Ashley Cole conundrum. But I'm, I'm more interested, because this is 2021, uh, to go back into the 1970s. The role of the YTS and The Apprentice has now passed into the past. It's way in the past. And you were, you're not so much an apprentice, but a carer. Uh, it was character building. When someone yelled at you for doing something wrong, it was it really was to make you not a man, but part of the group, because you won't survive, I guess, if you are a shrinking violent in a dressing room, because it is a very predominantly working class men's, as you say, atmosphere. So there's, there's a great tale in the book as you're learning the yes. ropes of just the environment. Absolutely. The, the saying we used to have at Luton, when I was an apprentice anyway, was you know, come to Luton and play football in your spare time ah. because that wasn't the major part of your role. Your major part of your role was, as you, as you identified, Johnny, we were responsible for our kids, we were responsible for the, the bathrooms, the dressing rooms, the corridor, the balls, the bibs, the terraces after home games on Saturday. We'd have assignments. I had the Kenworth Road end and it was the whole behind the goal, all of the, how high that was, whether it was... Um, 40 yards high vertical. I had the whole terrace to sweep on my own. Then you know, there was then you started to play football. If you were lucky during the summer, you'd bring the sand from outside, which was dumped by the lorries. You'd sieve it outside. You put it into the barrels, and then you take it down to the pitch for the groundsman Dick Wassell to to use to re-fertilize the ground. So a lot of those scenarios were just menial positions for us where we were expected to do them to the best of our ability um, and also ensure that the players who had obviously made professionals and were kind of in that special group where it was important to, to keep them minds right their equilibrium's good so we were expected to do our job in, in respects to they have no other issues apart from getting their kit on, doing what they need to do go to the training ground and perform to their maximum so it was a a great upbringing. It was a tough upbringing sometimes because the balls might be soft or, you know, someone might have not had their slip left in there or their socks are not there or you know, their shorts are gone missing or their boots are not being cleaned. The day for, and all oh, hell would break loose in a lovable way. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I would be hit. Uh, iron fist, velvet glove. Was the, were the terraces, did they smell of urine at the time? Because it the was all standing. Perhaps not, Johnny. Perhaps not, but under the concourse where the, the beverage and, and the toilets were, without a doubt, yes. that, that smell and that stench travelled as kind of just pervaded throughout the whole underneath of the ground. Anywhere you walked, you'd smell it, even though you weren't nowhere near the actual toilets. And it was the same when I saw the programmes at Wembley when I was 13 years old and I kind of sneaked in because my cousin and my brother they were nearly 16 and they were legitimately allowed to sell them but I wasn't but they got me in I got my white coat and again under the concourse where and I was stationed not far from the, the toilets anyway and your fans just coming in and out and drolls and you can the alcohol and then the stench of, of urine so that was all part of the the day out I guess John. yeah yeah it was all all a lot of fun and then of course you got the hitting and the abuse which I'll try and leave until the second half because this is it's well documented that uh, yes. certain professionals were treated in a way that today uh, would embarrass and still does embarrass those who, who don't do it. Uh, I love how you're making your debut and you're, you're thrust in 
this is the third of Luke again, the distant past. You would play on what was it? Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Easter Monday. I had no inkling that I would be involved in the squad. I obviously done your players boots on the Friday and whilst I was doing them David P came in and David P was a reserve team coach and he said to me have you, have you cleaned yours I said yes Dave you have yeah I have it's known the problems he goes okay so then Saturday came and again the first team would have played and would have been back in to clean their boots make sure they're, they're Monday and David said to me again are your boots clean so I said yeah yeah strange question he's asked me twice but I didn't think any more of it um, and then Monday came and we were there as, a, as a, in our Kira's um, capacity. And we've seen to all the jobs at the club that we need to do. The first team were upstairs having their lunch and uh, relaxing. Then they came downstairs to watch a bit of TV um, before they went back into the dressing room at two o'clock. So the apprentices used to stay together and play pool and just generally mess about and, and, and wait for the game to come at three o'clock. We're excited because any first team game, was exciting for us at that stage and we were right you know, in the middle of it in respects to right from the front seat. So I'm playing pool and all the first team go are going out the door and I'm wishing everyone good luck and you know, we're wishing this one and Neil Fitcher and Paul Fisher and John Fortner and the twins and um, Adam West and then Roy McCrowan is the last person out as he's rounding up everyone and he um turns his head as he doesn't doesn't break stride, just keeps walking, turns his head towards where I was about to take my shot and says, You're with us today. That was that was it. So I just shock. Look of horror, not horror, but just amazement, shock from my colleagues, um, with the apprenticeships. And I got up, I took I handed my key to sorry, my cue to the nearest person that was there and then went out the door after Roy. Now got to the front door front got to the door of the dressing room and you know straight away you think oh I've never been here before do I not now or do I just go in because I'm now part of the squad and I hadn't trained with the first team so often I had done previously but not in recent times and I'd only played 13 games so I just went in decided to just go through the door and slip right in straight behind the door at where the 12th man would normally sit so all the eyes suddenly descended on me I'm just sitting there waiting and Roy's addressing, now addressing the team in terms of what we're expecting to do. And then he mentions Ricky's with us today as the 12th man. And of course, as the 12th man, you're the only black person in the dress. Are you the only black person in the dressing room at the time? Um, without a doubt. Yeah. In the first team dressing room, I had a, my, one of my colleagues was Tim, Tim Smith, who was mixed race and from Gloucester. So the two of us would have been the, the black players at, at Luton at that time. I just wasn't sure if Brian was in yet, but we'll get to Brian. No. Um, the two thing, the, the thing you didn't mention is probably yes. the most fantastic passage of the book. The first right. thing you think about, because it's a Monday and of course everything's yeah. shut on Easter Sunday, is you think yes. of the hair. Yes, I was I was renowned, Johnny. For those days, Michael Jackson was popular. Mid seventies, we all wanted to rock an afro, but an afro takes maintenance. It, it, it takes preparation. So I would plait my hair during the week my mother said you know when I was 13 years old you better learn how to do this yourself because I'm not going to sit here and pat your hair you're a boy so you let her do it if you want your hair to, to be long and, and, and afro then you've got to learn to, to plait so my brother and I we, we can plait proficiently so I used to plait my hair on a weekday and just have it like that just to train and, and it'd be sweaty and you wash it there and then on the weekends I'd let it out and just 
Rocky Afro and you know, casually go out at whenever it was that we were going with my friends. And because it was a Easter bank holiday weekend, I decided I'm not going to pat it again. So I'm just going to leave it here for Monday and, and then maybe pat it up Monday night, ready for Tuesday morning's training. So the thing I thought was, obviously, I don't know if I was going to get on or not, but I didn't have the real the, the time to explain to anyone the cultural uh, aspects of having platted here and having Afro here. So I thought, well, at least they can see it's just here. So I don't have to worry to explain what the you know, braids or plaits are. No. These days, again, distant past, when we can have nine substitutes now, you're the 12th man. There's one sub. And then the 13th man is the skip boy. I imagine he's the one that washed all the clothes or gave it to the the person who had to wash them. What did this number 13 do? Generally, a skip boy would be um, used when we went on the road, Johnny. At home, we were all skip boys, you know, as many hands made light work. Mm-hmm. So any apprentice would do anything, anything that needed to be done, nearest person would be called, you'd be off and running, and, and you know, supply if the players needed their boots changed, they wanted shorter studs in their boots as opposed to medium, or if they wanted longer ones as opposed to short. Yeah, we'd always be there to, to put our hands in and make sure that everyone's taken care of. Now, the 13th man away from home, yeah, then you are rolling out the kit with the kit man, you know, doing the boots, making sure that each player, you're setting up each pair to their specific peg, sitting next to their favoured person, as opposed to, you know, right now it possibly would be in numbers. Back then it was more, you sit where you want, and that's your peg as a first-teamer, and that's your peg when you have the first-team games as well. So 12th man in this instance meant, oh, if anything happens, then you're going to be on. But it never crossed my mind. You know, I just I was just excited, the fact that I'm in this dressing room with all the quality players that I'd seen at close quarters and knew as friends, but suddenly I'm with them and I didn't know what to expect or what not to expect. So there's a, a certain naivety in mm. respect to just being involved. Again, I said, you know, hard. we went out for the warm-up with Keith Barber, who asked me to call him dad. Uh, to, to term of affection yeah, I like towards that. me and he was going to look out for me so I yeah dad or Keith yeah but dad is what I called him so deliver the, the warm up that's my responsibility now um, I've never really done a warm up before because I've never been a sub ever so but I'd seen you do crossing you do the, the requisite shooting from different angles near post far post crossing from the right crossing from the left so yeah, yeah it went okay and again there wasn't many fans in the stadium to to really see or wonder who is this person. And warm-up completed, back in, and again, just listen to the instructions, listen to see, watch how they first-teamers prepare mentally, um, you know, what, what words are exchanged between little individuals in different groups, whether that be defensively, midfield or, or up front, just that general camaraderie before the game. And then obviously the tactical discussion led by Harry and Roy, before going out at three o'clock. And this, by the way, is coming up to 45 years ago. This is Luton Town, Bristol Rovers. Was it second tier or third tier at the time? Second tier at the time, second, second championship. Yeah, what would be the championship now? And uh, John, Faulkner, John Faulkner goes down uh, on about, so I don't know, 60, 65 minutes, and you're on. Uh, and then things happen that, rather than recount them, because they're recounted in Ricky Hill, Love yeah. of the Game... How many thousands of people have come up to you and said, Easter Monday 1976, I was there? How many? Thousands? 
the past 45 years, they've definitely thousands. I would go out the gate would have been 8,000, second to last penultimate game of the season. But there was a number since that juncture and now who have said, I was there. You know, I, I, I saw those 22 minutes and, you know, what a 22 minutes that was. And thank you all so much for all the service you've done since that time. And if if it happened now, instantly, it would be like Deli Alley at MK Dons or Jude Bellingham at Birmingham. You'd be a star is born. Who? Oh, it's like Shola Shortire of Man United or, or Rashford. Remember the Rashford five years ago? No one know, knew who Marcus Rashford was. Similar circumstance. I don't know if you've spoken to Marcus about that because your careers and his, he's had more England caps, but they're quite similar. Because yeah, well, he came in I, in a Europa I, I, League game, scored two, and then scored two against Arsenal. Right. So, good, yeah, well done, Marcus. And, and, and he's managed to sustain that career, which is great. Because, you know, sometimes you get these moments where the young player comes in and off the bench and makes an instant impact and might do it two or three times. But then afterwards, when he's given the opportunity to be a regular first-teamer, potentially, he can't sustain that level. Because uh, a lot of times it might be that initial um, adrenaline buzz and that initial you know, just desire to go out there and, and do everything your best. And I think one of my greatest attributes was the fact that I was never, ever afraid to, to fail. I, I, you know, how I played, I played with no fear in my mind of the restriction or getting berated for losing the ball, for giving the ball, for not trying things. I just played with the kind of, not a reckless abandonment, it was always controlled. I, I played very, very comfortably in, within myself as to I'm doing the right thing, and if it comes off great, if it doesn't, it was still the right thing. That's and great. I, from a young age, I was able to have that kind of mentality. And in the second half, we will talk about how you coach young kids to be the next Ricky Hill. You model yourself on all these players, Best and Charlton and Pele and Eusebio, and then some Leeds United players like Peter Lorimer and Eddie Gray. I love the story you tell in the book about watching about the only game that's ever on TV in the 1960s. So you're sitting there in 1965 and you become a Leeds United fan because Albert Johannesson, one of the what-if stories of British football, uh, is playing this game. Did you meet Albert at any point? Unfortunately, I haven't. I never, never met him, the great man. But uh, you know, if I ever had, I would thank him for being that ignition, that, that, that spark, that flame that ignited the dream in me. I was five years old, six years old, just six, and saw someone in, in a white kit, and he was black, like me. And again, I'm a young child, I, I didn't know racism, I didn't know colour really, but I saw someone that I thought that was me. Uh, the dream then begun. I asked my brother, what team is that? And he was a couple of years older, so he said, that's Leeds. I said, well, that's my team. And I was fortunate from that time onwards that Leeds were the prominent dominant side within you know, the country throughout the late 60s and into the 70s. So I never had to change allegiance at all. I was able to stick with Leeds proudly and they moved on to Yorkshire cricket and Yorkshire Rugby League and you know, the Roses games against Lancashire and Yorkshire. Yeah, I'm, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. But it was just because I imagined that I was Albert Johansson. And yeah. so, so what you do is you learn how, if you're playing as a 10, controlling the game. There's, Richard Williams wrote a great book on the perfect 10. Uh, he talks about Maradona and some of the Italian players. Um, but it's all about, you say, controlling it instantly 
Um, would you say that the modern day Ricky Hill is actually Jack Grealish? You're talking about playing without fear, playing as a 10. And of course, you have, you've played with Tony Grealish um, in your <laughs> day. So did you, I'm just curious if you came across little Jack at any point. I've never, I've never come across little Jack, but I, I do admire how he plays the game in respect to his um, fearlessness, to take responsibility, to invite pressure against him, to relieve pressure for his side to always try to be creative as often as he can. And, you know, he really does penetrate when afforded the opportunity to. I was slightly different to Sir Johnny in respects to, uh, I was that those days the midfielder who would be, had to have the responsibilities to, to get back and double up with, with the fullback if Kurt Stevens was under pressure or John Ryan initially, you'd have to, or Paul Price, you'd have to get back and make sure that you were the first person to engage with the wide left person, and then you either force him inside or force him down the line to the fullback. So where Jack has got a little bit more of a luxury role without being disrespectful to him, although he does put his shift in with and without the ball, in those days, the, because of the way the game was played, and it was so fierce in regards to the long balls or the second balls or the keeper being able to pick the ball up and yeah. both defenders so they had to push up and condense the field and then the kicks and then when the ball was headed after the goalkeeper's long kick out then that's the only time you'd get to scramble for the ball and you'd have to produce something at those stages because it was kind of hectic and of course yeah of a better word. were you often the player who would contest the drop ball or would Brian Horton be there it depends on what, where it ended up Johnny you yeah. know Brian Horton for sure would be that safety net Behind, slightly behind me because the way Luton played which was fairly unique in, in that era from now moving even in the 70s we, we played a kind of um, loose 4-3-3 with, with three strikers with David Moss on, on the left wing and Brian Steen and Bob Hatton or Steve White and Brian Steen up front in the early times and then we played a three narrow midfield of Alan West or Luffy Cello on the left narrow Brian Horton behind that as a pivot and me on the right. So I had technically, I had no outside right in front of me, whereas the left side of midfielder had that luxury of an outlet pass. So I was expected to be able to, to, to move wide when necessary, to dribble wide if I have to, you know, to get crosses in, to engage with the left back if none of the strikers could come out, to then get back and help the fullback. So it was a, it was a really energetic role that I was asked to perform, but I enjoyed it. I think I mentioned in the book that I was never a right-sided midfielder, period. I would always, I'd always play centre midfield, as Brian Horton had played. Not as the, as pivot, but as a playmaker, Johnny Giles. That's, that was my guy. That, that's who I wanted to play like. So, so then Luton to found, found a spot where I guess it suited the team. It suited me to a degree because I had the energy to do it. I had the technical ability with it. And I, I was quite reasonable in the air. So I felt that I had that freedom then to kind of maraud anywhere I want on that right side and even on the left to, to, to be fair Johnny mm. and in this modern day you're, you're, you're coached by numbers and you've got to stay in positions I don't know how well I would have done I'm sure I would have been okay because technically I, I could cope with most things in that era or even this era I'm sure but in terms of the freedom and the enjoyment of the game to, be, to pop up in different areas where you're not supposed to be that, that moment of unknown to, to take chances without the ball to run beyond when the ball's still not totally safe. I see everything playing a little bit staged at the moment with the um, 
chess kind of chess game until someone scores. And unfortunately, when someone scores, then it goes hell for level, lever like the old days, and, and people are desperate to go to, to go and score and running all over the place. So I, you know, it's a different way of playing. I'm sure I would have coped with it. Mm. I don't know if I would have enjoyed it as much as I did in Aria. Maybe one of the things that should be considered is tossing a coin before kickoff and giving someone a goal head start so you have to attack but don't tell Gianni Infantino that because he'll he'll think that's a great idea um just comparing the two because Watford got in 1983 to second place in the championship losing out to Liverpool Luther Blissett was top scorer Mr Watford uh and Watford's style was I believe at Barnsley they call it vertical football today whereas conversely at Luton and I'm sorry to the Luton Town fans that are listening in, but I have just mentioned Watford. The goal was never, I like this. I, I'd pay to watch this football. It was never to stop the opposition. It was to play to win, attractive and creating and entertaining. Uh, that's down to David Pleat, or is that down to the players nudging David Pleat, say, come on, we can express ourselves here. We need money through the gate. And is it to do with having Eric Morecambe as one of the big fans, the top entertainer in the country? Before David, to be honest, and don't get me wrong, David was a, a, a serious proponent of attacking football. Uh, he was not anyone that would create, build a side or um, prepare a side just to contain, to try to keep the game tight for the first 60 minutes and hope that we nick a goal from a corner or a, a long throw or a free kick. He was one that prepared us to go for the game from the first whistle. I remember we worked on um, the kickoff, we had a kickoff whereby we lined up with five, like the old fashioned centre forward, inside right, inside left, outside right, outside left, five people. And we'd play the ball to the nearest person, whoever took it. Brian would play to Paul Walsh. Paul Walsh would start to dribble. I would then appear just inside on this inside right position. And if he was in trouble, someone would approach him, he could flick it to me. I could then collect it and, and start to dribble or play it back to him. Or if he, beat, he was able to beat someone. And we'd just surge forward. And that was from the kickoff, um, just to set the tone, just so we knew that we were in the front foot. We were going to have an uh, attacking intent throughout the game. And that was just to, so everyone knew the back players had pushed up behind us in case it didn't work or we'd lost it. And it was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful to create something like that on the training ground, which we all enjoyed doing, which sometimes caught the opposition out. Our style, stylistically, was always about, let's be creative, let's be imaginative. We, we were creating little buzzwords and secret words that no other clubs were using or would know. For, for instance, Sid, Sid meant you'd head the ball, you'd flick the ball on. If you heard that shout from any of your teammates and the ball was in the air, all you'd do is just flip the ball on. If you had a jack, all you'd do was roll the, back, the, the ball backwards like a back heel. You didn't look, you didn't wonder who it was, you just rolled it. If you heard brush, you just leave the ball and let whoever said it come and take the ball from you. Mm-hmm. If you heard Fred, you'd just leave, you, if the ball was past you and you heard the word Fred, you wouldn't touch the ball. you just dummy it and spin and look for the bounce pass off of the person it was going to. So we worked on those little secret things for us. Every day in training, part of our warm-up, Trevor Hartley was very instrumental in bringing those to Luton Town because he, he'd done something similar at West Ham years before with Brooking and those guys where they had over, and that was a London one, over, and they'd leave the ball. But we introduced four different ones, and it, it used to work so well. 
such a treat, such a joy, because when it comes off, those little things are magical. And it lifts us, it excites the fans, and it gets us going, you know, flat out with the attacking intent. And it got you to consecutive cup finals, uh, one one and one loss. 